Welcome back to In the Queue. I am Andrew, your co-host, and I'll go right back in the water after watching this movie. I'm not scared. Wow. Uh, this is Phil, your other co-host. I, unlike Andrew, I am scared. Uh, but <laughs> my favorite line to quote from Jaws, which is a movie full of wonderful quotable lines, is true. Pippet, Pippet, Pippet. <laughs> when he loses his dog, when he's when he's playing with his dog, oh. Pe- his dog's name is Pippet. Yeah, and then that's how you know that the shark is back because Pe- I thought it was Pepper. It sounds like he's saying Pippet. <laughs> I think it's Pepper, and I think it's still, he just goes, Pepper, 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 Pepper. I have to watch the movie again. Well, didn't you just watch <laughs> it? Yeah, I did. Well, the movie that we're talking about is quite obviously Jaws, <laughs> the classic Steven Spielberg film from 1975 that was the start of the modern blockbuster. And it was a listener request from Greg, who is with us today. Say hi, Greg. Hey. Hey, Greg. We're going to get into a conversation with him about this classic film. But before we do that, uh, we'll tell you how to find us on the web. You can find us at our website, which is www.in-the-q. That's the letter Q.com. That's our blog where you can find all of these episodes posted. And you can also use the comments section mm. therein to provide us with feedback and or suggestions Mm. like today's film you can give us a suggestion there on our blog alternately you can find us on facebook by searching for in the queue q u e u e film conversations with andrew and phil and leave your suggestion there and we'll be happy to pick it up and make it part of the rotation have you on the show have a great conversation with you about this movie that you either love or hate or feel completely indifferent about and then uh, you can also find additional sort of supplemental material that we post on our Facebook page. Uh, it's probably our most active forum of the forums that we have. Finally, you can find us on iTunes by searching for In the Queue, Q-U-E-U-E, Film Conversations with Andrew and Phil. And there you can subscribe to our podcast and have every single episode delivered right to you. On your doorstep, digitally. On your, on your digital doorstep. Yeah. So Good phrase. You should patent that. Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. You can patent phrases, can't you? Yeah. I, I just have to show the plans and send them into the patent office. Well, you know, you can just tabulate them and maybe not get like an official U.S. patent, with like a number and everything. But you can be you can credit yourself with having started the phrase. Tabulate them like Tom Cruise in Magnolia. <laughs> I have no, no little <laughs> I can know I can cannot confirm or deny that information. Uh, we're, it's a little inside joke, folks, that came from before the, the podcast. Well, anyway, today's movie, as I said, is Jaws. Uh, if you don't know about it, I don't know what rock you've been living, living under for your entire life. Uh, Greg, tell us a little bit about why you recommended this film for us and, uh, and why you're on here to talk with us about it. Yeah. Uh, well, first, thanks for having me and it's a pleasure to be on the show. Yeah. Uh, I think Jaws, it's, it's a great film because it's one of those that it's literally 40 years later we're sitting mm-hmm. here mm-hmm. and it's withstood the test of time, fake shark notwithstanding, it, it, the movie looks great, the cinematography is excellent, mm-hmm. and I think the one thing that really sets it apart from so many other movies are the characters yep. and the character mm-hmm. development and their interaction and in, in a way it's like the interaction of the characters with the environment itself. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. 
I, uh, it may be one of the best team of characters in any horror film ever. Yeah. I yeah, that, I think that's throw a, that out there. Yeah, I, I think that's I would, a, I would a agree. fair statement. Um, just to give you an idea of the film, if you haven't seen it, uh, it is truthfully about a character named Brody, played by Roy Scheider. And uh, he is the chief of police in this small little town called Amity. And uh, it's a coastal town. He, it's, In fact, it's an island mm-hmm. town. Yeah. And he is uh, new to the area uh, and hates the water. He is deathly afraid of it, doesn't like it, doesn't want to go near it. And nevertheless, he is the chief of police. And uh, a series of shark attacks crop up just before the 4th of July, uh, which uh, he rightfully reacts to in a very uh, authoritative fashion, wanting to shut down the beaches and make sure that everybody is safe. However, the mayor of this small town has other plans and wants to keep the beaches open because you can't shut the beaches down on the 4th of July. Mm. Chaos ensues. Bad things happen. And pretty soon, they've called in a gentleman from the Oceanographic Institute played by Mr. Richard Dreyfus. Mm-hmm. His name is Hooper. And they've enlisted the help of Quint, a salty sea dog who has promised them that if they want this shark gone, he's the man for the job. The three of them assemble, go out on a boat, and hunt the shark while it simultaneously hunts them. And that's the film. It's sort of broken up into two halves. In fact, the first half being that... The first part I described, the sort of goings on in the town, uh-huh. and then the second half of the film being the hunt. Right. Exclusively the, on the, the boat. Exclusively on the boat, out at sea. Yeah. Claustrophobic. It's great. Uh, it's 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 great. I mean <laughs> great. Jaws is one movie that I would put in this category of films that get more interesting as they go along. Um, because J- yeah. Jaws is one of those films where you're as the movie sort of goes into the final third they're introducing new elements to the story and throwing new things at you, whereas most films are, you know, they're kind of like winding things down at that point and yeah. tying up the ends that are already there. Um, another movie, just sort of on a tangent, there's a really great movie from the 80s called Witness with Harrison Ford uh, oh, yeah. where he plays... Uh, a, it's a Peter Weir, right? Yes, it is, Peter yeah. It's, a, it's one of his... I believe it's Peter Weir's... One of his first American films. Uh, yeah. And... Uh, so Harrison Ford goes undercover in, in Amish country, and it just, whereas you think that it might be sort of tying things up like a standard film does, like, you know, like uh, anything you can think of, basically, um, it, like Jaws, sort of brings in new characters, new elements, new locations, and it just ratchets up the excitement even more. And, uh, yeah. and that's what happens in Jaws, and it's, I absolutely love this film, especially the second half, the first half, as, as we mentioned, is kind of more like the victimization of the, the beachgoers. Um, it's all about the, the attacks and the, the deaths of you know, the, the, the people who live on Amity Island. And that's thrilling and exciting. But then in the second half, you've got the, uh, the situation where there's more empowerment because the, 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 you know, the team is fighting back. Yeah, although I think that part of the brilliance of this film is that that first half is effective in drawing you, the viewer, uh, 
into the drama mm-hmm. because I think if it was just a film about three guys going out on a boat to hunt a shark, it wouldn't be as compelling. It wouldn't be as it, it wouldn't pull you into it quite as much. Definitely not. Right. Because, yeah, you're not you're not you, you have to have that. The, the, the town of Amity, Amity Island, becomes this kind of surrogate for the 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 casual moviegoer, the person who's there in the audience. Well, you know, we all feel the sting when Mrs. Kintner smacks Brody after, oh, yeah. after learning about that Brody knew there was a shark attack and then her son died later. Um, that's a that moment in particular I would single out as a moment when we really get invested in wanting to kill the shark and get rid of it once and for all. Mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. I think the interesting thing about that specific scene is when Mrs. Kintner slaps Brody you really kind of see Brody's character as this, like, he's almost this Boy Scout, and he legitimately blames himself for the death, even though, like, he was overruled. And yeah. He, it's, it's just a great defining moment of the character because you can tell that he cares. You can tell that, you know, he's, he wants to fix it. He's, he's not okay with the way things are. Well, and, and even more importantly, it comes at a time of great seeming triumph for him mm-hmm. when he thinks that they have caught and killed the the shark right that essentially all these sort of bounty hunters there's a bounty placed on the shark three thousand dollars and all of these bounty hunting fishermen go out there into the waters to kill any shark that they can find and they return with a shark that richard dreyfus hooper immediately knows not the shark that we're looking for. Yeah. And uh but uh he he wants to believe it. Brody wants to believe that this is that the the, the every everything's done well. Everything's gone well and everything is wrapped up. Yeah. So that, that it stings all the more because he's just coming off of this high. Uh it's really great. It's really great. Yeah, I, I like the I like what you were calling the first half of the movie a lot because unlike a lot of movies where you're almost like hyper focused on the set of main characters, the Hollywood A-listers, mm-hmm. so to speak, I feel like the first half of this movie really focuses on the town as a whole. Yeah, um, they you're you're not really drawn into the story of, of of Brody and Hooper and Captain Quint until much later. They're almost these tertiary characters on the side. Like yeah, the movie starts out. You know, you know, you're introduced to Roy Scheider's character Brody, and you kind of get some insights into the type of person he is, the family man trying to keep his kids sit from cutting themselves on the swing set, you know, stuff like that. Yeah. But then you go yeah, into yeah. these the town meetings where Brody's almost on the periphery, and you're really starting to hear the voice of the town, the voice of the people, the voice of like almost the common man in on Amity. And it's a really interesting switch to be in that frame of reference in the first half of the movie. And then on the second half, then you almost like funnel down into these three characters and then mm-hmm. go on another journey of sorts. It's kind of like you, you see what you're playing for in the first half. You see the, the somewhat eccentric townsfolk. Um, you, you get to know some of them by face. There's that one scene that I, I never quite understood why it was there. Uh, I believe it takes place right after a, a, a potential shark attack. It shows like, a, like a, a man looks like a fisherman. He's got like a fisherman's cap and he's, he's walking out of some kind of a shop 
with like a pipe in his mouth and he's yep, carrying yep. like a, a bag or something and he just kind of stops on the corner and like looks around and <laughs> looks to the other side and then the camera pans to something else and you know th- something like that is actually a shrewd move on the part of, of Spielberg because Spielberg has always been really nice about showcasing the common man, the average people, sort of the yeah, yeah. the good working class, and you know he 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 shows a parade in Amity. He shows a bunch of people wisecracking at a town meeting, and like he really is interested in in making us care, for one, that there is a killer shark attacking this beach. Yeah, right. yeah, and and I think that those little moments, like the one you just described, are you know it's like a little it's like a little pepper in the in the sauce, right? It it it's just it doesn't serve a, a narrative purpose. It doesn't serve uh, what you would necessarily you know. It's not that kind of Hitchcockian. Uh, every single frame is valuable, and mm-hmm. it, and gives you information. Mm-hmm. Kind of you know that that level of like extraordinary control. It it just serves to uh, color the island right it colors the community it colors the sense of these people yeah you know that that guy because i actually i actually thought about that when i saw him this time when i was watching the film <laughs> and uh he's one of and my i was thinking about characters. him and i yeah he's great he's great but i was thinking about him and i was like man that guy you know that guy is that guy has lived here his whole life this is this is his existence you know he's he's a man of the sea he has been living in his beach house since he was a child and this is what he does. This is how he lives. Right. Yeah. And I don't, and, and it just like all of that, just sort of in the, in that brief moment, I was like, Hmm, yeah, this guy, I really like this guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And you, you know, some, some people might wonder how did Brody, who's from New York end up as the police chief of this small town. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong. It's never really overtly explained. Um, but what, what we are treated to, um, on this drunken boat ride to go check out Ben Gardner's capsized boat, uh, Brody is swinging from a wine bottle and he's talking about how in New York there's crime every day and you know there's it's always a dangerous place for your kids. But in Amity, one man can make a difference. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. So that's a. I always feel like whenever somebody gives exposition in a film, it it is always best countered with with humor. And that's what Brody was doing. Roy Scheider's character was was feeding us backstory about his character and what what he was doing there. But the fact that he was drunk and that we couldn't see he was holding a wine bottle until he swung it drunkenly at Hooper, it makes us laugh. And we think, okay, so there was at least more than one good reason why this played out (laughs) the way it did. Well, I'm I'm glad that you mentioned that too because I think that Spielberg is – fascinating in how he deals with comedy and comic relief yeah because i he's not a very good comic director if you just look at the films that he's directed that are out and out comedies like 1941 one of the worst (laughs) movies ever made uh i will maintain (laughs) i hate it so much (laughs) i like the the films that he out like that are out and out comedies i feel like are total duds they don't hit the the jokes are just weak, but when he's making a a more conventional Spielbergian film, you know, Raiders or Jaws or you know, E.T. Uh, e. or Close Encounters or you know any any number of 
of his Jurassic Park, any of these, the the moments of comedy are genuinely good, and it's because they are relief from the tension. They are those moments yeah. of, of of it's it's a break. He understands the ebb and the flow of the film and how to build tension uh, by allowing us some respite from the the sort of pr- the, that press of of yeah, of I, I totally terror. agree. I totally agree. And that's one of the great things about Jaws is that I feel like we're on this roller coaster ride of emotions. You know, it's like there's this uh, classic example is when uh, Roy Scheider uh, Brody is uh, scooping the chum out of the boat. Mm -hmm. And for the first time, you see the face of the shark. And there's, you know, they tee it up with, you know, you know, come down here and come, you know, come chum some of this shit. Yeah, and there's that comic moment followed immediately by this moment of terror and fear when you see the shark for the first time, and it's great yeah. how he just completely juxtaposes those moments together. And then immediately followed by what is arguably the most famous line in the film, and another comic moment. Like it's a it's a funny, even yeah. though it's terrifying, it's also a very funny statement. Yeah, I think you're going to need a bigger boat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Which, which incidentally enough, that was completely ad-libbed by Roy Scheider. It was not in the script. It was completely off the cuff. That's awesome. Nice. Well, this film won a few Oscars, including one for editing. And since I'm an editor, primarily, um, I pay close attention to that sort of thing. And uh, Verna Fields did the editing. She, she won an Oscar. She, she did a couple things in this movie that I just want to single out that I think are just... So amazingly brilliant. These two cuts that I love so deeply. The first one happens right after the moment you just described. Um, he's chumming the bloody fish guts. Then the shark pops up out of the, the ocean. And then we cut to a shot of uh, blank space. Just the ship. Uh, yep. the, you know, the bow. I think it's even out of focus. It's just nothing, there's just nothing there. And then, you know, after maybe like half a second, boom, Roy Scheider's head pops into frame, totally in focus, totally composed perfectly. He just yeah. meets his mark exactly, and he's got the cigarette in his mouth, and he looks scared out of his mind. And, and he slowly starts backing away from the camera. Yeah. And that, that, you know, the director and the editor, just as the director and the cinematographer, work closely together. And I know that they all work together. And that's a brilliant choice on Spielberg's part, how to convey the utter shock of seeing Bruce popping out of the water. <laughs> um, and then my other favorite cut in the film is when Hooper and Quint and Brody are all arguing about the anti-shark cage. Because, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, they're like, Hooper's got this gear from the Oceanographic Institute, that he thinks that if he can go down in the shark cage underwater and um, and jab at the shark with a, a a spike, but that has poison in it, he can kill it. Um, and Brody is like yelling at Hooper, and he's like, he's like, what? Are you, this isn't gonna work. And then Hooper goes, you got any better suggestions? And then it cuts back to Hooper or to Brody, and you're thinking, oh, this is gonna be Brody's response to. To the, the question. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, this cage pops up in front of Brody's face. And then all of a sudden, they're assembling the cage. Boom. So we're a beat ahead. We know exactly what's happening. 
they reach the consensus they're going to build the cage after all. It's it's so efficient and so economical that yeah, yeah. it's just somebody who pays attention to to the way that movies are cut. I think they will think that this film totally deserved an, an Oscar for editing. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's unquestionable. I mean, it's it's so tightly woven, like this entire film. I mean, this this is. It, first of all, it's a classic for a reason. Second of all, it started a franchise for a reason. Mm-hmm. Uh, third of all, it started the modern blockbuster as we know it for a reason. I mean, this is this is the genesis of sort of all that we know today as modern like filmic entertainment in the in the biggest sense. You know, this movie is transcendence, Andrew. <laughs> oh God, let's let's. Let's not get ahead of ourselves. <laughs> it, no, no, although, in in some ways, you're completely right. Yeah, transcendence is kind of the <laughs> the spawn. Yeah, the distant, uh, distant. Another uh, great moment in editing in this film, and I noticed it uh, for the first time the this a couple times ago when I saw the movie was the beach scene before the the Kintner kid is is attacked, and it's basically showing Brody's point of view mm-hmm. and they skip between a view of him and the view of the water and they do it by people passing in front of the camera. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that was, that was so well done. You have a person walking to the left of the frame and then it cuts walking to the right of the frame and it cuts and it just looks like this seamless organic vantage point from, from Brody and you just, and- yeah, it just and works. what's more, it it like pulls you into his state of mind because what you see is, they've said you know we're not going to close the beach prior to this, and what you see is, a you know a bunch of establishing shots of the beach, people playing with their dog or, you know, hanging out on the beach doing beach things, and Brody's just sitting there, sort of leaning back in a chair. His family is right there with him, his kids are playing on the beach, and so it seems like an idyllic scene but then when it does that that triple cut that very you know three shots right in a row people passing in front each one slightly tighter on Brody's face it serves to bring you into his head and allow you to realize that he is laser focused he's terrified about the shark and that's all he's looking for and that all that's all he cares about yeah and it's, and, it's also to do some credit to Rochelle's performance too in the sense that he well, he will shift uncomfortably uh, yeah. in, in his you know beach chair when the camera is getting closer and closer on him, and Spielberg actually employs some some cool technical devices. Uh, namely, there's the, the the money shot, the vertigo shot, where when he sees the Kintner boy being flipped over in the water and devoured, uh, this technique is where you, the camera will um, either back out and zoom in at the same time. Or zoom in and back out at the same time, uh, if I got that correctly. Yes. Yeah. It's it will dolly in and zoom out, or dolly out and zoom in. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. It's the shot is called a vertigo because Alfred Hitchcock was the first person to use it in his film Vertigo, and then on top of that, I noticed something else. He Spielberg used a diopter uh, for this really yep. great shot where uh, so this like random dude just walks over to him and starts talking some inane bullshit that that Brody is not interested in and and he's looking over the other guy's shoulder and the diopter will split the focus between what's happening in the distance and what's happening right in front with the middle all blurry 
Uh, really clever stuff. Somebody, I think it was Pauline Kael, compared Spielberg to Eisenstein when this film came out. Not not oh. Hitchcock, mind you, but Eisenstein. Yeah, yeah. That beach scene in particular is a perfect example of what he can do when you know when he's clear-headed enough to set up a suspenseful scene like a set piece and and he know okay yeah, uh, yeah. up up to Brody's right you've got the guy playing with his dog up to Brody's left two girls in the water up to Brody straight ahead a, a young couple and you just cut back to all those things and just keep up with what's happening and then of course we're all expecting the shark to pop up at any moment so it's really suspenseful yeah and and I think that uh Spielberg doesn't, he gets credit for being a great filmmaker, obviously, and people always talk about his films, but I don't think they always, unless they're film nerds, they don't always think of him as a suspenseful director. And he's a master of suspense. I mean, uh, uh, of of the caliber of all, all of the great suspenseful filmmakers. I mean, mm-hmm. his first sort of hit film was Duel, which is an incredibly suspenseful film. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and he course, also acknowledged that as kind of like a grandfather of Jaws. Yeah, yeah, which which I can completely see because it's a it's a truck chasing men instead of <laughs> <laughs> instead of a shark chasing men down. It's, it's funny when you bring up Duel, but at the end of Duel, he uses the same noise when the when the truck goes off the cliff. Yeah, yeah, as when the right. shark dies at the end of Jaws. Yeah, it's <laughs> that's it's another thing. Fun. The sound, they, they won an Oscar for sound for Jaws 2. Oh, yeah. yeah. When I was in college, I was taking a, a sound for film course, and I presented a couple scenes from Jaws uh, to sort of you know go with this thesis that I was writing. And there's this concept called anampathetic sound that this French theologist, um, not theologist, he's not in the theology. Theorist? Theorist. Theorist. Yeah, he's not a theologist uh but anyway he's a very smart intellectual and he uh he wrote this book called audio vision which is a fascinating read and this concept of anempathetic sound is sound that sometimes humorously will comment on the events that are going on in the film or anempathetic meaning uncaring un unempathetic and the uh, the moment that the my classmates singled out to, for me, I wasn't even prepared to talk about it. But they said they thought that the final shot of the Kintner scene, when the raft is all bloody and torn up and laying on the beach, and then the tide keeps bringing it in and lapping against the the vinyl, um, that to them was an example of an empathetic sound because it was like uncaring, basically. Mm-hmm. Yeah, which actually, incidentally, reminded me of. There were actually quite a number of scenes in this that reminded me of scenes from Saving Private Ryan, which came much later in <laughs> Spielberg's career. Um, but things like that. I mean, the 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 bloody water lapping at the beach. You know, I mean that that same image is is used in Saving Private Ryan after the mm-hmm. the storming of the beaches at the beginning of the yeah, film. Spielberg's really a hack. You know, he just keeps repeating himself. There's no originality whatsoever. I mean, when you were talking about the scene, uh, you know, like the building of suspense and everything, one of the things that I kept thinking about was that maybe, yeah, I mean, maybe it's been a while since this film, but Munich, one of his more recent 
great successes, and I think in one of his best films. Uh-huh. Uh, the scene with uh, the bomb and the telephone is a perfect example of just like absolutely incredible sort of placing of elements in order to build immense amounts of suspense. Yeah, it's it's a just a wonderful sequence and just goes to show you that he hasn't lost it. Yeah. And that movie is really dark. I mean, there's some... Munich? There's oh, yeah. Some, there's some scenes in that film where people who sort of complain maybe about Spielberg being too too Hollywood and too glossy and too happy endings. There's some really brutal stuff in Munich. I'm very, uh, I'm very curious about Bridge of Spies. Yeah, I don't know. You don't think so? Well, I just don't know. I don't know. Well... I'm hoping for the best. <laughs> I, I will most definitely see it. Yeah, of course. Yeah. You've got to, right? I just felt like, you know, Lincoln was missing all the things that make Spielberg movies magical. Like it was just lacking in magic and, and wonder and the kind of but the it, reason the reason he's, that I he's had misfires was, before. I mean the the terminal was uh, one of the biggest duds I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> I mean, that was another attempt at comedy by Spielberg, incidentally. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just, just, ugh, just a drag of a movie. Yeah. But then he'll come back and he'll make something like Munich or Catch Me If You Can or, you know, any number of good films that he's made. Indeed. So, yeah. Um, I mean, if it isn't clear, I love this film. There's a reason it's a classic. There's a reason everybody talks about it still to this day 40 years on from the making of it or from the release of it for that matter mm-hmm. um, had a very difficult time being made uh very you could read a lot of stories if you want to the backstories of the shark breaking and not necessarily working and actually that being one of the reasons we don't see the shark very much in the film which actually works to the film's benefit I think. absolutely <laughs> almost brings in kind of a hitchcock uh, leave it to the imagination kind of quality yeah, yeah, it does. It's very good. It does. Um, so you you can uh, go out there and read all of that material on your own. There's a there's a wealth of information about the making of this film out there. Uh, but I love it, uh, Greg. I'm assuming that you love it since you suggested it. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> and we know that Phil loves it. I love the film as well. Eleven hundred men went in the water. Nineteen seventy-five. That honestly. <laughs> One of my favorite soliloquies in the history of film. It's Spielberg's favorite moment from the film. Yeah. Understandably. It's, it's, and it's also such a great performance by Robert Shaw. I mean, yeah, unbelievable performance. Went over to touch my friend and thought he'd fallen asleep, but uh, he kept bobbing up and down in the water. <laughs> he, he'd been bitten in half below the waist. I'll never wear a life jacket again. I think we should leave it to Robert Shaw. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Incidentally, watching Richard Dreyfus in the background of half of those shots while he's telling that story, almost as great a performance as Robert Shaw's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's a perfect counterpoint, just watching him watch Robert Shaw. And and the moment that he learns that the tattoo that he had was the Indianapolis. Ugh. That's mm. uh, it's pure gold. It's such a great see. That's but that's the moment though when everybody unites and everybody's having a good time and everybody's together on the same page, and then boom, 
that's the peak, and then it's just the fall for the rest of the film because the shark starts yeah. banging against the boat. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Yeah, it's it's a it's a very great scene. That the the interesting thing about that Indianapolis scene is that it was it was written by one writer, Howard Sackler. Then John Milius rewrote it, and then Robert Shaw actually got in and rewrote it. So it's kind of Shaw's words as the final iteration of what this this speech was. It was just a great moment in cinema. Well, it shows. It shows, and it also sounds like a Milius kind of. Uh... Soliloquy, kind of <laughs> macho survivalist. Yeah, like man, man against nature kind of uh, soliloquy. <laughs> so please join us for our next episode when we will be talking about the new Jake Gyllenhaal movie directed by Antoine Fuqua, Southpaw. Yeah, very excited, very excited. Uh, Jake Gyllenhaal getting a lot of press for how cut he got for this film. He really. He really did the the boxing regimen to get yeah, in shape for this film, especially coming right on the heels of Nightcrawler. Yeah, where he was gaunt and lean and yeah. and creepy looking. Very impressive. Uh, so please join us for that episode, and we will catch you next time. Thanks, guys. <laughs>